All right, come on in and grab a seat. Happy Augustine Day, everybody. Come on in and grab a seat. Welcome to the Parkway Church's Theological Equipping Class. My name is Zach, one of the pastors. Hope that you are doing great. Let me open us in a word of prayer, and then we will begin talking about this particular guy. Let's pray. Father, we come to you through the Son and by the Spirit and confess that you are great. We need help, we need your grace, and thankfully you have provided it uh, in both your Son and your Spirit. And so we ask that you would uh, bless this time that we, might, uh, that we might love you more, that we might uh, know more importantly that you love us. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. All right, well, welcome. We are studying this year church history. So let me start with a little caveat. First of all, if you are feeling overwhelmed or you are feeling stressed out because we just spent four weeks in a row talking about all these technical things, don't be stressed out. The rest of the year will actually go pretty quickly. In the early church, though, because figuring out who God is is a pretty big deal, we had to spend a little bit more time unpacking the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of who Christ is. But the rest of the year will be a little bit faster, a little bit easier to comprehend. So don't beat yourself up. If you're freaking out, don't freak out. Just push through and we will make it there together. We will arrive in the promised land. Now, just to give you a recap in church history, if this is your first lesson where you're joining us, we talked about the early church where Christians were primarily persecuted and then the church had to deal with what do we do uh, for Christians that have betrayed Christ and then want to come back to the church. Is the church made up of sinners or saints? How repentant do you have to be? We saw penance and all these other kind of things. Then we saw the conversion of Rome with Constantine accepting Christianity. I say accepting in quotes, air quotes, because uh, he probably was not actually a regenerate believer. And then the church is dealing with different issues. It becomes cool to become a Christian and so things start to become corrupt. And what eventually you have to deal with is what we've been dealing with for the last four weeks, which is shutting down heresy. So we had all these fancy terms and all these fancy heretics. Here's just a quick summary for you. Here's all you have to know. If you're freaking out, don't worry, you're not a heretic. Heresy is not a matter of the intellect, it is a matter of the will. It is not a matter of not understanding God, it is a matter of seeing the truth and then rejecting it. So all you need to know is that there is one God who's three persons, and when it comes to Christ, he's just one person who has two distinct natures. That's it. That's all you have to remember from the last four weeks. And here we get into today, Augustine. And Augustine is going to be kind of this bridge from the early church to the Middle Ages, okay? So we're going to talk about Augustine. Let's first of all talk about how you pronounce his name. You say it, Augustine. It is okay, though, and do not be a Nazi about it if somebody says Augustine, Okay? The reason that we say Augustine is because that's most likely how his name would have been pronounced in Latin, uh, but it doesn't really matter. Okay? As the late R.C. Sproul would say, St. Augustine is in Florida, St. Augustine is in heaven. Okay? Now that place though in Florida, St. Augustine, is named after St. Augustine. Why? Because it was Spanish explorers who were Catholic who were originally discovering and you know, going throughout Florida, and so that's why they name it after St. Augustine. Okay? Another thing, when we say saint, we don't mean that we believe in the Roman Catholic view of saints. We're simply using this term for two reasons. One's, one, it's a historical title. And two, it adds clarity to who we're talking about. If I quote St. Maximus and I don't say saint, I just put a quote on the board that says Max. And you're like, who the heck is Max? Right? Or if I quote St. Anthony and I don't say saint, and I just put a quote on the board that says Tony. You have no idea who that is. So saint is just a title that helps us understand that this is a major figure in church history. But today we're going to be getting into the second of what we're calling key figures uh, in church history with St. Augustine of Hippo. Hippo, by the way, is a town in North Africa. It is not this. Carl drew this, okay? And I left it because I thought it was hilarious. 
So that's why that's up here. He didn't own a hippo. He didn't ride a hippo. I've heard different things. He's from a town in North Africa uh, uh, called Hippo. But let's get into St. Augustine. Now, here's why Augustine is important. He is the most influential figure in church history, period. There is not a close second. Outside of the Bible, this is the most influential figure in Christianity. It's like Jesus, he's God, so he's way up there. Paul, Augustine, okay? It's a big deal. Now, why is Augustine considered to be the greatest mind in Christianity outside of the Bible? That's, that's a pretty universal consent, okay, among scholars. Why is it? Why is it not someone like Athanasius? Why is it not someone like Luther? Why is it not someone like Aquinas? Well, the reason is, is that Luther really only influences Protestants, so Catholics, so Luther is not around for 1,500 years, so he can't be the most influential. Aquinas isn't around to the Middle Ages, and he really only influenced Catholics after him, so he can't be the most influential. Athanasius, who Jared talked about, if you didn't hear that lecture, is very influential, but the reason he's not the greatest thinker in church history is because one, he really only contributed in one major area, which was Christology, and two, those were not his ideas. Those were not original ideas to him. His view of Jesus was something that other Christians already held. The reason Augustine is such a big deal is, one, because he contributes in so many areas of theology. He contributes on the Trinity, on the church, on the sacraments, on grace, on the end times, on our view of war, on all kinds of stuff, and he has a lot of original thought, okay? So he is going to be the most influential figure in church history for both Catholics and for Protestants. And in a second, we're going to talk about how really the Reformation is a battle over who owns Augustine. Is his view of the church supreme or is his view of grace supreme? So that's what we are going to talk about. So who is Augustine of Hippo? Let's talk about his early life. By the way, if your notes have spots on them, that is because our sprinkler system burst and that gross brown water got on my notes, okay? Sorry, the struggle is real. Two, there are a few typos that I will point out as we go. No matter how many times I read over my notes, I can't see my own mistakes. It's like sin in that way. You can't, you can't see your blind spots. And so I realize there are typos in there. I'm not an idiot. I'm an idiot at times, but not generally. And so forgive me for those typos, okay? First of all, who is Augustine? Let's talk about his early life. His full Latin name is Aurelius Augustinus Hipponensis. Aurelius Augustine of Hippo, okay? That's his name. That's why we say Augustine, because of uh, Augustinus. He is born or was born. You'll notice in your notes that it just says he born, okay? That's one of those typos. He was born in 354. He born in 354 in Tagast, North Africa. Now, North Africa at that time was part of the Roman Empire and what is today Algeria. So when you think North Africa today, you think Muslim countries, okay? Don't think that for Augustine. It, the, the North Africa at this time is colonized by the Romans, so it's very Mediterranean. So think Roman, think Greek, think eating hummus for breakfast, that kind of thing. That's where he's born. His father, Patricius, was a pagan, and a pretty strong pagan. But his mother, Monica, was a devout Christian, okay, a devout Catholic. There's a picture, a very famous painting right there of Monica and Augustine. And by the way, neither of them looked anything like that, okay? Most of our paintings and stuff we have of church history come from the Middle Ages. That's not how the people actually look. Like you'll see a picture of like frail, blue-eyed Jesus, and you're like, this guy looks like he's from Britain. He's not from Britain, okay? He's from Bethlehem. And so, uh, but that's how the paintings are. So no, Monica in real life doesn't look like a ghost. And, uh, you know, Augustine doesn't look emo or whatever it might be. But it's a famous picture, so I wanted to provide it for you. Augustine showed exceptional brilliance from a very young age, so his parents sought the best schooling they could afford. He went to study at Carthage at the age of 17. He eventually became a very talented rhetoric professor. 
okay? So this is a very talented guy, a very brilliant guy. He taught rhetoric at a few different places, but he had to keep moving because he had terrible students. When he taught at Carthage, his students were too unruly. He writes about this. He's like, they're not showing up for class and they're disturbing the peace and all of this. He went to Rome, but his students wouldn't pay him on time. So he complains and writes about how his students aren't paying for this education. So he eventually ends up in Milan where he uh, teaches rhetoric, okay? Despite his brilliance in Latin, because Latin is the language for rhetoric, if you think of guys like Cicero, Cicero, and these kind of guys, if you think of uh, brilliance in rhetoric, you think Latin. He was brilliant in Latin, but Augustine was not great in Greek. This is about the only academic deficiency he had, and here's probably why he wasn't so great in Greek. He had a very mean, very demanding Greek teacher who beat him, and so he wasn't great at Greek. Now, when I say he's not great at Greek, he is still better at Greek than any seminary student I've ever met. Okay, so he's, when I say he's not good at something, he's still better than most people. But it's not, he's not as good at that as he is at philosophy, as he is at uh, logic, as he is at Latin and these kind of things. That's about his only academic flaw. Now, before becoming a Christian though, this guy is Hugh Hefner. I mean, he is as bad as you can get. He lives a very, very sexually licentious lifestyle. Okay? He is sleeping around with people all the time. According to one source I read, he would even try to seduce women at churches. And that's what he did. Okay? He had a long-time live-in girlfriend that he didn't marry. So he had this mistress, this long-time live-in girlfriend, uh, and this is somebody with whom he would obviously commit sexual immorality. Now, her name is not mentioned anywhere in church history. Augustine never mentions her name. No sources ever mention her name. I had an Augustine professor in school, and he simply called her Roxy, okay? So Augustine is living with Roxy, and he has a child, outside of wedlock, okay? His name is Adeodatus, which means gift of God. So he has one son out of wedlock, and he has this live-in mistress, and he is sleeping around with everyone, okay? Now, this woman was most likely a slave or a former slave that he lived with, and then even after he sent her away, so his mom would encourage her to send him or her, or her away, you're not living in righteousness. Augustine doesn't care. He's not a Christian. He would openly say that he's not a Christian. He was set at some point to marry a girl after he sends away Roxy, He's set to marry a girl, but he had to wait two years until she was old enough. So she was about two years too young to marry. And so he had to wait two years before he could marry her, but his lust, of course, couldn't wait. So he took another mistress in the meantime. Now, in addition to being a playboy and all of his sexual sin, he joined a cult called Manichaeanism. So how how like God is it to take this guy who's in a cult, who's sexually licentious, and that's who God chooses to redeem and make the greatest figure in church history. That's what God does. When we talk about God choosing the foolish things of the world, the lowly things of the world, the sinful and despised things of the world, that's exactly what God does with Augustine. So he belongs to this cult called Manichaeanism. The cult was founded by a guy named Manny, that's why it's called that, in the third century, and it's of Persian origin, and it's a form of Gnosticism. Zach, what is Gnosticism? Gnosticism teaches that there are two eternal forces in the world, good and evil, kind of like the force in Star Wars. Star Wars is excellent, by the way. I'm not slamming Star Wars. But the theology of it, obviously, is not great. So, uh, so you know, basically, Augustine's a Jedi, and you've got the evil, and you've got the good, and they're eternal. And the goal is to get rid of what is physical. What is bodily is bad. What is physical is gross. Whoever made the universe is, a, is an inept, stupid God. Let's get away from that. And the goal is to just ascend into the divine light and get rid of what is physical and just absorb yourself into what is spiritual. This is the cult that Augustine belongs to, okay? So he's a cult member. He's also sexually licentious. Augustine didn't like Christianity for two main reasons. Let me tell you why. Okay, other than that it pushed on his sin. One, he thought, again, there's another typo, not he though, he thought, 
okay? I can't see that. When I'm reading it, though in thought, they're the same. Autocorrect won't change that because they're both words. Figure it out, word, okay? First, he thought the stories and language in the Bible were crude and unrefined. So this guy's a rhetoric professor. So when he reads that God walks in the garden, that makes no sense. God doesn't have a body. When he reads that God changes his mind, that makes no sense because God's supposed to know everything. When he reads that there are figures in the Old Testament that are committing polygamy, though the Bible's clear that that's evil, he thinks, why are these guys the heroes? They're doing all these terrible things. And so he sees that kind of crude, unrefined, not eloquent, not talented language, and he thinks, this is a stupid book. Obviously, if the God of this is true, or if, if, if there's some God that's being proclaimed to have written this book, that's not a God worth following. The other thing is he didn't understand how God could be good if there was evil in the world. Where did evil come from if not from God? This is part of the reason why he's Manichaean, why he belongs to this cult. That system has an answer for that. Evil's just always existed and good's just always existed, but the good stuff didn't create the evil stuff. Great. But Christianity has to deal with the problem of evil. If God is good and God is all-powerful, as Hume would say, whence cometh evil? Then why didn't he stop it? Why didn't he not create it? What's going on there? Okay, so these are Augustine's two main objections to Christianity academically, and then the other one is he doesn't want to give up his sin. He's very clear about that, that he loves his sin. Now, in Milan, he met two very important people that would go on to influence him for the rest of his life and be instrumental in introducing him to Christianity, okay? The first is Siplicanius, who introduced Augustine to Neoplatonism. Neoplatonism is the philosophy of Plotinus, okay? Platonism is the philosophy of Plato. Neoplatonism is the philosophy of Plotinus. And that philosophical system will become very helpful for Augustine because it will answer the question of how God can exist but not be evil, Okay, we'll talk about that in a second when we talk about Augustine's view of evil, but that will become really important. By the way, Augustine probably never read Plato. You'll hear a lot of people say that Augustine baptizes Plato and Aquinas baptizes Aristotle, and uh, when they say Plato, what they mean to say is Plotinus. They mean to say that he's Neoplatonic, he's not Platonic. That's a little technical, but again, here at Parkway, we give you everything you need to know and even some things you don't, okay? Now, the other one will be very important. It's a wise bishop named Ambrose of Milan, who taught Augustine to read the Old Testament allegorically, thus quelling his other objection to Christianity. So Augustine has this objection to Christianity that it's crude and all these stories in the Bible are weird and stupid and there's weird stuff happening. What's going on? And Ambrose basically says, you're not reading it correctly. That's not the point. That's not God's point in that passage. You have to figure out what the point is. And he teaches him to read the Bible allegorically. And this is gonna get rid of the other hurdle that Augustine has uh, you know, when it comes to Christianity. Ambrose, also very brilliant. Back in the day, hmm, I want to get rid of this. Back in the day, writing was not done with spaces or punctuation, okay? Like today, we have spaces, we have punctuation. Makes reading very easy. In fact, most of you, when you read, you probably read silently, okay? That was not the case back in the day. They would mush all the words together with no spaces and no punctuation. So if you came across a phrase that said something like this, what does that say? Does that say God is now here or God is nowhere? Which one? It can be either one. You see, 
You run into this problem when you don't space out your words. So what most people had to do is they had to read out loud. Reading silently was something most people could not do because you'd come across something like this and you'd misunderstand it. Well, one of the things that attracted Augustine to Ambrose is he saw Ambrose reading silently and he thought, this must be an intelligent man if he's able to do this because most people can't do this. Okay, back to the picture of the hippo. Okay. So he meets Ambrose, and Ambrose is going to be kind of his spiritual mentor. He starts going to church, he starts hearing Ambrose preach, he starts meeting with him, and this will be uh, a major influencer on him becoming a Christian. By the way, let me give you a fun fact just about Ambrose. At one point, Ambrose corrected the emperor for wanting to erect a pagan statue. But the emperor's mom, Justina, who is an Arian, tried to get Ambrose to give his church to some Arians, but Ambrose refused. And so what Ambrose did is he had a sit-in in the church. So he's being threatened by the Roman emperor and his mom. You know, deal with your own problems, Roman emperor. But he's dealing with the Roman emperor and his mom, threatening to kill him. So he has his church sit in a church service and to keep their spirits up because they might be martyred, they start singing hymns. And some scholars think that is the birth of congregational singing in the Western church. That picture right there is not Santa Claus, that is Ambrose, okay? Right there, it's not good old Saint Nick, that's Ambrose, look how wise he looks, look at that beard, it's incredible, okay? All the wisdom in his eyes. Now, but Augustine did not want to, so he starts wrestling with Christianity, he starts to say, this seems reasonable, this might be true, there's good answers to my questions, but Augustine doesn't want to convert because he knew he'd have to give up certain physical pleasures. Here's a great quote from Augustine, God, give me chastity and continence, but not too soon. Make me holy, but not yet, I'm still having fun. After spring break, God, I promise. I promise, okay? Let's talk about his conversion. One day, Augustine is sitting out in a garden and he's overwhelmed with his sin, okay? And there's some kids, this is according to Augustine's own telling of his own, his own conversion. He's sitting in a garden, he feels overwhelmed with sin, he's wrestling with whether or not Christianity is true, and he hears some kids playing a little game. And they're singing a song. You know how kids play games, like Ring Around the Rosy, and they hold hands and they do ring around the rosy and they all fall down, and it's actually a song about the bubonic plague that killed a third of Europe, but they sing it. These kids are singing some little children's song, and supposedly one of the lines in the song is tole lege, tole lege in Latin, which means take up and read, take up and read. So they're singing this children's game. I don't know what game it is. Kids don't talk about reading, but uh, they're playing this game, and he hears this line in the song, take up and read, and he thinks maybe this is a sign from God. So he opens a Bible, and he opens to the book that converts a bunch of people, Romans. He opens to Romans 13, 13 through 14, and it says this. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Augustine is converted at that moment. He repents, he trusts in Christ, and uh, he's converted through the reading of Romans. Same thing is true of Martin Luther. Same thing is true of John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, is converted hearing Luther's commentary on Romans read at a church, and he gets converted. At that point, he's converted, and he was baptized by immersion by Ambrose in 387. There's another typo, 387, not 397. The, the, the numbers are right next to each other. We had a winter storm. I got a lot going on in my life, you know. Give me, give me some grace. He's baptized by immersion, which is interesting, by Ambrose in 387. He sold his property and began a monastic life in North Africa. His mom and son died around the same time, and he was overwhelmed with grief. His son was just a teenager, Okay. So that is Augustine's life from early life to conversion. Now let's talk about ministry and his contribution to Christianity. One day in 391, Augustine is visiting the town of Hippo. Ha, there it is, okay? Hippo is also in North Africa in modern day Algeria. And he, had turned, uh, he attended a church service where a bishop named Valerius was preaching. 
So Augustine starts to gain a reputation. He's known for being brilliant. He's known for being a good rhetorician. People start to know who he is. He's, a, he's an academic celebrity. And he attends this church and Valerius knows who he is. And so he kind of turns the tables on Augustine. He starts preaching and says things like, dear church, God always provides a shepherd for his sheep. And everybody's looking at Augustine and he's like, nope, not me, not me. And so Augustine's popularity had grown and so they forced Augustine to be ordained against his will and he eventually became the Bishop of Hippo in 396. He would remain the bishop there for the rest of his life, okay? So he gets ordained. At one point, there are two bishops in Hippo, which was not allowed by church law, but the other guy died and then you got Augustine, okay? And that's where he's gonna stay. Again, Hippo, not the animal, the town in North Africa. Not this, a place that's ethereal, okay? All right. Now, I want you to see this, this picture of Augustine. This is a very famous picture of Augustine. When you see art of St. Augustine, you will often see him with a heart that is on fire, okay? That is God enlightening the heart so that it burns with love for God and love for others. So Augustine, when we say at Parkway that we want to have orthodoxy on fire, that we want to have you be very intelligent when it comes to scripture and also really love Jesus, we want you to do both. It's head and heart. Augustine is your guy. He's a true academic who also loves God, loves others. Love is a huge theme in his theology. So if you look at that picture, you'll see that light coming from heaven with the Latin word veritas, which means truth. And you'll see two things shining. You'll see Augustine's head shining, and you'll also see this heart that he's holding in his head, this flaming heart shining, that through this love of God and love of others, there's also this intelligence, this intellect, these academics, and the two go together. Theology on fire, head and heart is what you want, and Augustine is your guy. Now, what did Augustine contribute to Christianity? Oh, I don't know, a bunch of stuff that's really important. Number one, he solved the problem of evil, okay? That's kind of a big deal. The question that he's dealing with is this. If God is good and everything he creates is good, he's good and all he does is good, right? Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. If God is good, how is there evil in the world without God creating it? If there's evil in the world, that would mean he's not a good creator. If God makes, you know, a mountain and cancer cells, he's not a good creator. So what do we do with that? Here is Augustine's solution that he gets from Neoplatonism, okay? Evil is not a thing that God created. It's the absence of a thing. It's a privation. It's when mankind chooses less than God, that's what we mean by evil. So to say it another way, evil's not a stuff. Let's, let's name some things that are stuff. Go for it. A chair, right? What else? This could last a long time, by the way. What else? Earth. Pizza, amen, right? Every good gift, right? What, mountains or hippopotami or stars or whatever. These are all things that God made. Well, evil is not something that God made. It's not like a clump of stuff. I can't just like hand you a bag of evil or something like that. I can hand you a bag of, I don't know, acorns, but I can't of evil. So Augustine's solution is God creates everything good and what we mean by the word sin is when there is a turning away from that good stuff. So evil's not a stuff, it's a privation. So think of, for example, a hole in a shirt where shirt should be. That hole is not a thing. It's just absence of shirt. If I said, give me a box that just contains holes of shirts but no shirt, there would be nothing in the box, okay? Or it's like a shadow. A shadow is the absence of sunlight. Or coldness. Coldness is the absence of heat. These aren't things. They're privations. They're absence of things. And so that's what Augustine will do with evil. 
What is evil? It is when it is a twisting of what's good. It's not a substance. It's not a thing. God doesn't just make mountains and then make the ocean and then just make a clump of stuff called evil. And that is how there can be evil in the world, but God not be responsible for it. Okay? No big deal. Augustine. He defended the idea that Christians can and should use any true philosophy because all truth is God's truth. There's a hesitancy in the early church of whether or not Christians are allowed to read Plato. They're allowed to read Plotinus. They're allowed to read Aristotle, whatever it might be. Are they allowed to read Cicero? Because these are all pagan thinkers. And Augustine says, yes, you can read them. All truth is God's truth. You understand that, right? If you say you can't read them and they're saying something true, now you're saying God doesn't own all the truth. You're now saying that God doesn't want you to know something that's true. So all truth is God's truth. So here's what we need to take from that as Christians. If a Muslim philosopher says something true in astronomy, we should take that because that doesn't belong to him, it belongs to Jesus. If an atheistic scientist says something that's true in science, we need to take that because that doesn't belong to them, it belongs to God. All truth is God's truth. You as a Christian can read philosophers who are pagan and you can take the good things that they say because those belong to God and you can leave the rest. Augustine's famous example is he, he refers to the time in the Old Testament when the Israelites are leaving Egypt and they take all their gold, right? They plunder the Egyptians. They go up to those, the, the, the Jewish women go to the Egyptian women and they're like, hey, Susie, that's an Egyptian name. Hey, Susie, I'm going to a party. I need to borrow your fancy earrings. So they do and then they just leave the next day and they just take all their stuff, okay? He says that's what we as Christians do when we take from great ideas from the past. It doesn't belong to them. The treasure belongs to the people of God. He wrote what is probably the first extensive work of Christian psychology ever, Confessions. If you've never read Confessions, I would encourage you to read that. It's the first extensive work of Christian psychology where he is analyzing his heart, okay? This is something that we're used to. We live in an age post-Freud where psychology is treated even as a soft science, but that was not the case with Augustine. And so in the Confessions, he's talking about all these things in his heart. He talks about being a kid and stealing pears from a neighbor's pear tree He didn't even want to eat the pears. He didn't even really like pears. Him and his friends went and took them and just fed them to some pigs just for the thrill of sin. Why did I want to steal something that I'm not even going to eat just to throw it away, just to hurt this other person? Because it's exciting. Because sin is exciting. And so he talks about those kind of things. He has famous quotes like, thou madest for thyself, talking about God, and our heart is restless until it rests in thee. He defended the unity of the church against Donatism. Now today, Augustine is going to be involved in two major controversies, what's called Donatism and Pelagianism. I'm not going to talk about either of those today because that's our whole lesson next week. So come back for that. We're going to deal with two other false teachings, but these ones don't have to do with false teachings about who God is. We've already dealt with those. These are going to deal with false teachings about the church and the nature of salvation. He is the first one in church history to really clarify a full doctrine of grace. Why do we as Protestants love Augustine? Because what he says about grace Okay? He was actually called Dr. Grace by some of his followers. Some of his followers called themselves the hopeless lovers of all or nothing grace. Okay? So his big thing is grace. If you like grace, you like the fact that God is the one that provides for your salvation, you do not earn it, Augustine is your guy. Against Pelagius, he taught that mankind was born sinful and salvation could only be a free gift of God. Augustine is gonna be the big guy that says, mankind is born totally sinful, we are born totally wicked, We are not born neutral. We are not born good. From our mother's womb, we want to rebel against God. So all salvation must be of God. He must do it all. He must do everything. Give you some good quotes here from Augustine. What is grace? That which is freely given. What is freely given? Given, not paid. If it was due, wages would be given. But grace would not be bestowed. 
But if it was really due, then you were good. But if, as is true, you were evil, but believed on him who justifies the ungodly. You see why the reformers like him. That's a quote from Romans. Consider what by right hung over you by the law and you have obtained by grace. But having obtained that grace by faith, you will be just by faith. For the just lives by faith, Augustine. Or this one. For you did not obtain favor for yourself so that anything should be owed to you. Therefore, in giving the reward of immortality, look in this last phrase, God crowns his own gifts, not your merits. Even when God rewards you on judgment day, he's not rewarding you from something that comes from you. When God rewards you, he's simply crowning his own work. He's crowning his own merits. Salvation and sanctification completely come from God. For what good work can a lost person perform except so far as he's been delivered from damnation? Can they do anything by the free determination of their own will? When man by his own free will sinned, i.e. Adam, then sin was victorious over him and the freedom of his will was lost. Here's what Augustine is saying. If there's any sense in which you have free will, it's not as a lost person. As a lost person, all you get to do is sin. You don't have the opportunity to choose what's right. You don't have a will that can follow after God. You voluntarily sin, you do what you want to do, but you cannot do what's righteous. Those in the flesh do not please God and, quote, are not even able to do so, the Bible would say, okay? He discovered undeniable evidence for absolute truth a thousand years, another typo, another typo, there it is. Again, I'm not Augustine, in case you're wondering. I'm not, he would not have these typos, unless he was writing in Greek instead of Latin. For absolute truth, a thousand years before Descartes. With Rene Descartes, we'll talk about him some when we talk about the Enlightenment. What he's trying to do is he's trying to build a philosophy that cannot be doubted. Okay, so he doubts everything he can possibly doubt and he says, can I come up with a foundation, with a starting point that cannot be wrong? Can I come up with proof of absolute truth that cannot be wrong? And his famous thing is the cogito, cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. His whole idea is if I can doubt everything, something has to be doubting and therefore I must exist. The one thing that I cannot doubt is that I'm a thinking thing. Even if you say I'm deceived, then I'm a thinking thing that's deceived. So he, he, uh, uh, what Descartes does is he tries to come up with this way to prove absolute truth. We live in a culture that hates absolute truth. Your truth is just your truth and what's good for you is good for you and what's good for me is good for me. That's not what most people in world history have thought because most people in world history were smarter than us. We have more technology, so we think we're smarter, but we are way dumber, okay? But Augustine comes up with a proof for absolute truth before Descartes. Here's Augustine's proof, ready? He simply says this. If I say the phrase, I exist, I can either be right, and therefore I exist, or I can be wrong, which still means I exist, because a non-existing thing can't be wrong, okay? Right, when I say I exist, and you say, "Uh uh-uh, who are you talking to, right? If you're saying I'm wrong, then I still have to exist, because a non-existing thing can't be wrong, again. Augustine is a good thinker. By the way, if you want some helpful resources, I'll recommend two. If you want the, the best standard academic biography on Augustine, it's called Augustine of Hippo by Peter Brown. And if you want just a short collection of his works, because it's gonna be really hard for you to read City of God or something like that. It's very long, very tedious. Uh, There is a book by a guy named Vernon Burke called The Essential Augustine, where he's gonna take, it's short. I mean, it may be 100 pages, and he's gonna take a bunch of different excerpts from Augustine. That would be a good introduction for you if you're interested more in learning about this figure. He developed an interesting method of interpreting scripture. Any interpretation that furthered your love of God or love of others could be the meaning of the text, okay? So the way he would interpret the Bible is not how we as Protestants would interpret the Bible. We like historical, grammatical, literal. What does it mean to them originally and what does it mean today? Science, that's what we love. 
Augustine would say that God can mean more than the human author. So how do you know if your interpretation is going off the rails like the heretics, or how do you know whether or not you're being a faithful interpreter? Here's the answer. Does that interpretation further your love for God and others? And if so, it may be a correct interpretation. Does that interpretation that you come up with, though, lead you away from God or lead you away from others? If so, that is a wrong interpretation, okay? He developed one of the first theories of predestination. Augustine believes in double predestination. This is another thing the reformers will like about him, though his view on that would not be accepted by the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church would take his view of grace against Pelagius, give it a thumbs up, but they would downplay and neuter his view of predestination. They did not like his view of double predestination, but Augustine is really the first figure in church history, not to mention predestination, there are other guys, but to really give a big, fully formed view of predestination that will be super influential, okay? He was the first major Christian to explicate just war theory, okay? If you've not gotten a chance to listen to our series from last semester where we did social and political theology, we have a lesson on just war theory. What is just war theory? It's when Christians are allowed to use violence, It's when Christians are allowed to go to war. Generally, we're peaceful people. We turn the other cheek, we pray for those who persecute us, we bless those who curse us, but there are times for love of neighbor where we must take up arms to protect somebody and that is a kind, loving act. Jesus' command about turning the other cheek is about personal retaliation. It's not about self-defense when someone's trying to kill your wife. It's not like they stab her and like you turn her face so they can stab the other cheek. That's ridiculous. That's not what it's talking about. Okay? So he is going to be one that is going to give us rules for just war theory. When can Christians take up arms? When can Christian police officers use deadly force, etc.? That's going to start with Augustine, and then Aquinas will bolster that even more. He refuted the heresies of Manichaeanism. Raise your hand in here if you got converted out of Manichaeanism. You didn't. It's not really a cult that's thriving today. Okay? That's partially because of Augustine. You might have gotten saved out of another cult that's a little gnostic but not from Manichaeanism. He focused a lot on the heart, the importance of love, and the conscience, okay? Here's a great quote from Augustine, and I hope that this quote haunts you because it will give you a lot of peace. Love God and do what you want. Here's why I say that. A lot of people get stressed on making decisions the Bible doesn't address. What job should I take? What university should I go to? You know, should I go on this vacation? Whatever it is. Here's what Augustine would say. Love God and do what you want. Now you say, well, Zach, I want to get a mistress. No, 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 listen, listen to the order. Love God and then do what you want. As long as you're doing this, as long as you're not sinning, God has given you freedom to follow conscience, which is great, okay? That should give you a lot of freedom. Zach, what job does God want me to take? He doesn't care, just pick one that's not sin. Pick the one you want. And so Augustine is gonna be really helpful when he specifically talks about conscience, the freedom of the Christian, the things that God has revealed to us, we are bound to. We may not think of God in ways that are outside of the Bible. We may not uh, disobey commands that are in the Bible. But when it comes to -to day-to-day life on things that God has given us to choose, then we should remember that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That gives you a lot of freedom in life to pursue non-sinful things as you desire. Because God is good. God has given us, quote, richly all things to enjoy. Do you believe that passage? Not sinful things, but all things that he's made to enjoy. God is not for asceticism, which is what you have with monks whipping themselves in the back and only eating gross food and never drinking wine and that kind of stuff. God has given you these things to enjoy. He wrote a lengthy work, a very famous work, The City of God, okay? De Kiwatate Dei, Contra Paganos, The City of God Against the Pagans, in which he laid out his theory that world history is a clash between the city of God 
and the city of man. In this sense, Augustine is better than Hegel. All right, Augustine has a a view of uh, kind of a a philosophy of history that is different than Hegel. let Let me explain what I mean by that. When Augustine is writing, the Roman Empire is collapsing. Okay, they're being attacked by their enemies. Glorious Rome, the eternal city, is not looking so eternal. And what a lot of Romans were saying is the reason that's happening is because of all these dumb Christians. The Christians have forsaken the Roman gods, Jupiter and Mars and these guys, so they're furious, and that's why Rome is collapsing. Christians are the reason why Rome is not doing well. And Augustine is gonna turn that the other way, and he's gonna say, no, 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 the reason Rome is not doing well is because God is judging you, because you're persecuting Christians, and because you're still following paganism. So he's gonna create this whole history that tries to explain that all of world history is a clash between the city of God and the city of man. By the way, let me say something pastoral. Your main enemy is not the devil, it's you. Your main enemy is sin. All the decisions you make are either oriented towards God or oriented towards self, that's the big issue. That's, that's your main enemy. You are your worst enemy, just like I'm my worst enemy. Our issue is sin. And so all of world history is this clash between the exaltation of God versus the exaltation of man. What is the first sin of man? It's that clash. You can either submit to God, like you should have, or you can be like God, deciding good and evil. That's the clash. Mankind wants to be God. We want to decide what's good and evil. We want to live our lives the way we want, whereas God wants us to submit all of world history as that clash. So let's look at this great quote from the city of God. Two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself. The latter in the Lord. For the one seeks glory from men, but the greatest glory of the other is God, the witness of conscience. The one lifts up its head in its own glory. The other says to its God, you are my glory and the lifter of mine head. In the one, the princes and the nations, it subdues are ruled by the love of ruling. In the others, the princes and the subjects serve one another in love. The latter obeying while the former uh, former take take thought for all. The one delights in its own strength, represented in the persons of its rulers. The other says to its God, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. So you see that clash of uh, the exaltation of man versus the exaltation of God. Let's talk about the legacy of Augustine and why he's kind of a big deal. By the way, you see that picture? You see that little uh, stained glass picture on your notes? What is Augustine holding in his hand? The flaming heart. There it is again. That's how you know it's Augustine if you see art, okay? Let's talk about why Augustine's a big deal, okay? When I read about this, I get super depressed because I look at my life and I think, I've done nothing. I trip over my own feet. I can't even get typos out of my notes. And then I read something like this about Augustine. Augustine was a rhetoric professor in Milan before his conversion and had a broad education in the humanities. He combined Neoplatonism with the Bible and wrote over five million words. That's the length of about 90 doctoral dissertations. He wrote over 100 books, 500 sermons, and 200 letters. He solved the problem of evil, defended the doctrine of grace, proved the existence of absolute truth, and defended the Trinity. In fact, he studied the Trinity for more than 22 years before he finished writing De Trinitate. Okay? So again, I don't know what you did with your life. I don't know how big your 401k is, but Augustine is better than you. Okay? He's better than me. He is, without a close second, the most influential theologian outside of the Bible. Let me give you a great story about this. So I did my graduate work at a Catholic uh, university because I was doing philosophy, and the Catholics are great at philosophy because they don't believe in sola scriptura. Sick sick stab right there. Uh, And so I had a buddy who's a Catholic, but a believer. 
I really do think he loved and trusted Jesus. And we were in a theology class together, and, uh, and so we were reading Romans, and we're talking about Romans and all this kind of stuff. And so we were friends. I was the Protestant. He was the Catholic. So we kind of rib each other and make fun of each other. And uh, I thought something was really, really interesting. So when my son was born, I named him Judah Augustine. My son's middle name, he's named after this guy, Augustine. He, he and his wife were pregnant at that time, and when she gave birth, he named his son Zachary Augustine. So think about that. We're both appealing to Augustine. It's such a perfect picture of the Reformation. I, as a Protestant, love Augustine because his view of grace. He, as a Catholic, loves Augustine because of his view of the church. So though we disagree with each other on several areas of theology, we are both appealing to Augustine. It was a, like a microcosm of the Reformation. I told him that I won that debate because he didn't just name his, middle, his son's middle name Augustine. He named his, first son, or his son's first name Zach. So I won. He named his son after me and Augustine, okay? So Augustine, that, that is gonna be the thing in the Middle Ages. Um, uh, during the Reformation, the question is gonna be, who owns Augustine? Who's interpreting him rightly? The clash in the Reformation is do we hold to Augustine's strong view of the unity of the church primarily, or do we hold to his strong view of grace and predestination? The Catholics choosing the former and the Protestants the latter, okay? There was a common slogan during the Reformation at the University of Wittenberg. That's where Luther taught. It wasn't sola scriptura. It wasn't the Bible alone. It was this, the Bible and St. Augustine. That's how influential this guy is. People are quoting him like he is scripture. John Calvin famously said, quote, Augustine is holy ours when discussing Protestantism against Catholicism. That's the issue. The Protestants don't think that we're starting a new church. You understand there's no new church. A new church is called a cult, okay? If you're someone who thinks that Christianity didn't really start to like the 1500s, you're not thinking in a Christian way. Jesus promises that the gates of Hades will never overcome his church. There's never been a time at church history where there haven't been people that love Jesus. There have been times where there are people who love Jesus, but they're also off on a bunch of stuff. The Middle Ages gets pretty bad, but there are still true believers. So the, the Protestants and the Reformers, they can't just say, we're starting the new church. What they're doing is they're going back to the early church. They're going back to before 500 AD and they're looking at councils, they're looking at creeds, they're looking at figures like uh, Irenaeus, they're looking at figures like Augustine, they're looking at figures like Athanasius. And so they're not saying we're starting something new. What they're saying is, you Catholics have already drifted, we're just going back to the early church. So they're appealing to Augustine. Now, let's talk about some negative things that we got from Augustine. When you're this influential, even your bad stuff will trickle down. Here's the first one, a bad view of sex, okay? In fact, you even today probably feel this a little bit if you're a Christian, where sex is forbidden before you're married, which is true, and then when you get married, you still feel a little bit guilty. You still feel like you're doing something wrong. You still have some sort of weird sense of shame. Where does that come from? Part of, well, part, partially that comes from sin, but a lot of that comes from Augustine. You see, sex within a monogamous heterosexual marriage is not sin. In fact, that happens with Adam and Eve before the fall. Sex is God's idea. It's his gift to you as a married couple. Other people at your wedding give you like a toaster. God gives you sex, okay? I don't know, I don't know how much you like toast, but there you go, okay? It's God's gift to you. It's God's gift to you. But because of sin, it becomes twisted. Because of sin, there becomes perversion. There becomes adultery and premarital sex and homosexuality and all these other kinds of things, okay? Augustine, though, is so influential, his negative view of sex, even within marriage, is gonna influence the church in a bad way, okay? So let me tell you why I think that happens. Augustine was so enslaved to his sexual sin, 
I think that when he finally became a Christian, that was something he was never able to shake. His only experiences were, in, were negative. His only experiences were sex being sinful, and so he was never really able to shake that, and so he writes very negatively about sex, and that's gonna influence both the Catholic and the Protestant tradition. Let me give you two quotes. But the action, and here in context, of married intercourse is not performed without evil. Or this other one. Surely, any friend of wisdom and holy joys would prefer, if possible, to beget children without lust. By that, he means just desire and marriage. So Augustine didn't think sex itself was sinful, but he did not think it could ever be done without sin. And so his view was that you should just, everyone, celibacy is the best, okay? So that, he gives us that negative view. He gives us a view that the act of baptism itself not the faith of the person being baptized is what marks regeneration. You get strong sacramentalism with Augustine, okay? When someone is baptized, which by the way, we have three baptisms we're celebrating today. When someone is baptized, what is important is the faith of the person being baptized. It's not really the faith of the baptizer. We'll talk about that next week with Donatism. And it's not just the act in and of itself, okay? Just because you get wet, that doesn't put you in right standing with God. What matters is faith, whether or not your heart has been changed, but with Augustine, you're gonna start getting a strong view of, well, you don't start getting this, you already have this, but it's gonna be further promulgated, a very strong view of infant baptismal regeneration. Augustine thought unbaptized infants went to hell, and so you're gonna get this strong push of what matters is the act itself, ec opera operato, of the work performed. As someone sprinkles the water on the baby, that is the thing that takes away the original sin of Adam, okay? Remember, we like Augustine, but he's also still super Catholic. Keep that in mind, okay? Number three, he helped develop the doctrine of purgatory. He helped develop the doctrine of purgatory that, uh, that when you die, if you are a faithful Catholic, you cannot stand in the presence of God directly. There's still sin in you. So you have to go to this place called purgatory, purgatory to purge away those sinful stains before you can enter the gates of heaven. He's gonna write promoting that pretty extensively. He greatly bolstered the power of the Church of Rome. Again, he is a faithful Catholic. He wants people to submit to Rome. He wants people to submit to the Roman bishop. And so, uh, again, I'm, I'm not sure. So here's a question I've often wondered. If Augustine was alive during the Protestant Reformation, who would he side with? I personally think he would have sided with the Catholics. What I've read in Augustine, most of his stuff is far more, his view of grace and predestination, he would have agreed with the Protestants. But he probably would have said it's not a big enough deal to split the church. In a sense, the Reformation was a failure, right? Because now you have a split bride. If the church was really reformed, we would all be one group. There wouldn't be Catholics, Protestants, and Greek Orthodox. You'd all be one group. So in a sense, the Reformation was a failure because you got a split bride. How much does the Bible talk about unity in the church? So I think Augustine probably would have agreed with the Catholic. He would have agreed with the theology of the Protestants on certain areas, but he would have agreed with the Catholics in other areas, Okay. Like this one, number five. <clears throat> he believed that justification was by grace alone, but not necessarily faith alone. Okay, so I don't, Luther and Melanchthon are the first ones in church history to say that not only are you saved by grace alone, the Catholics already held that, but that the way that you get that grace is simply by believing, is simply by faith and trusting. They're the first ones to do that. They appeal to Augustine, but they misinterpret him. Augustine does not think that. Uh, if you want a, a good book defending what I just said, Alistair McGrath's Eustitia Dei would be a great one, the, the righteousness of God. Augustine believes that you're saved by grace, meaning God does all the saving. Jesus earned all the stuff. You don't do it. But how do you get the grace to Augustine? Well, you get the grace through sacraments like baptism and communion, through penance, through works of righteousness. So the grace, the, the, the gift, all the money, first all the salvation money, 
comes from God, God alone. But you, you do, he puts the money in different places. Puts a little bit of the coins in the waters of baptism, a little of the coins in the, in the wafer and communion, a little bit of the coins in the, when you're confessing and doing penance, and that's how you get the grace. That is not the Protestant view, okay? So uh, his view that we're saved by grace alone, amen. But that it's not by faith alone, we'll come back to uh, bite us as Protestants. Lastly, he believed the church should intentionally be made up of believers and non-believers, okay? So in the early church, to be in the church, you had to be a Christian, you had to be baptized. You had to be someone who had made a conscious profession of faith to be a part of the church, okay? After that idea, you start to get infant baptism, which isn't done till a few hundred years after the time of the apostles, at least in records we have of church history. And so now you start getting a mixed body. You have people in the church, some that are believers and some that are unbelievers. And so Augustine is really gonna promote that. He specifically uses the analogy of the wheat and the tares that have to grow up together and then God will sort it all out at the end. The problem with that is that that parable is about lost people and believers, not about people in the church. Okay, that parable is about lost people and believers growing up on the world and God separates them at judgment day. It's not about in the church should you intentionally try to have lost people on your membership roles, but Augustine would say yes, that the church should be a, uh, a mixed corpus, a mixed body of believers and non-believers. So whether you love him or hate him, I'd encourage you to love him. He's a sinner. You're like, but Zach, he believes some wrong things. Okay, go ahead and just name some heroes other than Jesus that didn't believe some wrong things. I'll wait right? All of our heroes are flawed. Everybody has mistakes. Everybody has issues. On the whole, though, this is, uh, this is a good guy, I think, for the faith. Not only for the faith in that he's orthodox, but also, I think, a good guy for Protestants to know, to read, to love. One of my favorite figures in church history. Yes, he has severe flaws, but he also has a, real, a lot of good stuff. So, that is Augustine. He's going to be the bridge from the early church to the Middle Ages. Middle Age thinking will start with Augustine, okay? And it will then move forward. He's going to be... Uh, if you were to devote your entire life to studying one figure and one thinker in Western history, it would not be a wasted life for you to study Augustine. So let me pray, and then we will do some Q&A. Dear God, we thank you that we stand in a tradition, that we just uh, Christianity didn't start with us or with our parents or their parents, but rather it's been going on for 2,000 years and even older if we go back into Judaism. And so we thank you that you have had faithful men along the way, men that you've gifted, because none of those gifts of his intelligence came from him but from you, men that you've pulled out of the muck and the mire, that you're the kind of God that takes cult members who are sleeping around with people, cult members involved in orgies, and you use them to bring the gospel. We thank you for that. You could have chosen those that were morally upright. You could have chosen those that were squeaky clean, but instead you take the sinner. We thank you, Christ, that you've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. May that give us comfort when we sin because that's who you love. It's in Christ's name, amen.